Psalm 34. It is 22 verses. I'm going to dare read the whole thing, and then we'll break it down together. Psalm 34. God, help me experience your goodness. That's our prayer for today. Psalm 34. Now, in your versions, you might have a, a heading that says something like, Taste and see the Lord is good. That title is put in by the translators. But then you'll read this, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. That is part of the original. This is the heading that the author put, so keep that in mind. Verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer and want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What, is, uh, what man is there who desires life, who loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Father, help us to see to experience your goodness today. Lord, we, we, we feel the weight of our trials, of our failures, of the uncertainty of our time. But Lord, we say, please help us still in that experience your goodness. Meet us here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, Psalm 2713, this is from the New King James Version. This is how I memorize it. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Oh, about four or five weeks ago, Sarah and I were sitting in uh, my lounge and I was crying and I was upset and I was frustrated because we had trial after trial after trial. We hit wall after wall after wall. And I said to her, I don't know how this verse works. What, what am I supposed to expect in seeing the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? I don't know what to expect. I know God is good. I know, I see Jesus, and I know God is good, but I don't know how to ex expect to experience that goodness. As we talked about it and prayed together, the Lord brought peace. But I, I think it's something that we all wrestle with because we can make this mistake. We can settle for less than what God has for us as his people, especially those of us who are people of the word. 
a church like servants where we, we value the scriptures, we value truth, we value good teaching, we value the gospel, getting the gospel right. These are all non-negotiables, but we can be content in understanding the goodness of God and doubt that we can ever experience it. But David writes this psalm when he's just gotten through a life-threatening situation. And he, he wants those who would read. Remember, the Psalms were written to be sung corporately. And he wants those who would sing this song, not only to know the context, to, to remember what he's been through, but more than that, to know the God who shows his goodness, even in the midst of really difficult situations. See, God wants us to believe his goodness for sure. That's the idea of verse 8, taste and see. The idea of taste there is using taste, the physical taste, as a metaphor for understanding. We used to play this game with when I was a youth worker in the States where you blindfold the kids and then you, you, you have, uh, they have to sit there with their hands behind their back and then you give them something to bite into. Maybe an apple, maybe an onion. You never know. <laughs> Things you can't get away with now in youth work. And they would taste it and go, oh, oh, yeah, it's an apple, that's fine. Or, ugh, it's an onion, and they spit it out. They had understanding even if they couldn't see because they could taste. Metaphor, taste is a metaphor for understanding. So when he says taste and see, he's saying understand, and the word for see there means to experience. It it means to have firsthand experience. He's saying understand and experience the goodness of God. This is what the psalmist is about. This is what Psalm 34 is about. And so we pray, God, help us. Help us. So so this actually psalm was written as what's called an acrostic. That is, according to the Hebrew alphabet, it goes in alphabetical order. I don't know Hebrew, so I'm not going to get into that. (laughs) But I do want to give three main ways that I really believe that we can experience the goodness of God in the land of living. In other words, today. Three things. Here's the first thing in verses 1 to 7. We experience God's goodness, listen, as we celebrate others' experience of God's goodness. This is what David's doing. In 1 to 3, David is clearly not ignoring their difficult situations. He's not assuming that the people who had seen this weren't going through difficulties. In fact, look what he says in verse 2. He says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Now, if you have a different version, humble is translated differently. In NIV, it's translated, let the afflicted. In the New Living Translation, it's, it's, it's translated, let the helpless. And so the idea here is, is that, that in celebrating, in calling these people to celebrate how he's experienced the goodness of God, he's not ignoring how difficult their life is. He's not snubbing them. In fact, it's important that we see that in that, in this situation where he's assuming some of the people that would sing this psalm corporately would be going through very difficult circumstances, he still calls them to a definite, expressive celebration. One of the things that keeps us from experiencing the goodness of God is that we're waiting for our own experience instead of looking to see what God's doing in other people. You know, I have to say, one of the things that God has really been convicting me over the years is when I see God blessing other churches. And I think, well, how come you haven't blessed us like that? What's the deal? And I mope and I said, you know, when am I going to see your goodness? Instead of celebrating, Lord, thank you for blessing your people in that way. And it's funny because when I begin to give thanks for what God's doing in other groups of believers, you know what I see? The goodness of God. I experience the goodness of God. Now, but what he's doing here as well in verses 4 to 6 we see is what he's doing. He's testifying of the answered prayer. Look at verse 4. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my prayers. He says a similar thing in verse 6. This poor man, he says, Uh, cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Now, this is not David celebrating his superior praying. Oh, I stood before the Lord and prayed in King James English, and thou hast heard me. 
He's not showing off. It's not as if he had the right zeal, he had the right words, and this is why God answered his prayer. No, he's saying, listen, I'm I'm celebrating the faithfulness of God to answer prayer. How faithful God is to answer prayer. See, when we're talking about celebrating others' experiences of God's goodness, part of that is us giving God thanks when we hear how God's answered people's prayers. This is what's often missing in our prayer meetings. There's a thousand requests and hardly any come back and answer. Here's how God answered that. I know some of the house groups, what you guys do, and it's a great practice, keep it up, is you'll write out the prayer requests and then go back to them and say, hey, we prayed about this. Any answer? Oh, yeah, I forgot to say. All this happened. Praise the Lord. God, you're good. You heard and answered that prayer. But also, listen, notice what he says in verse 5. He says, those who look to him, that's look to God in prayer, are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This is interesting. This word for radiant here, it's, 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 it's not used that often in the Hebrew Bible, and, and it's used, though, in some really significant places. Specifically, it seems to describe the experience that Moses had when he came down from the mountain of God. You guys remember that? Moses comes down from the mountain of God. We're going to read about this because after uh, uh, these two series we're in now, uh, starting in May, we're going to go through the book of Exodus. And we're going to see when Moses comes down the mountain, he, he's, there's so much, his, the glory of God is so radiating off of him. People are afraid. So he has to veil his face. He has to veil his face so that, that the people aren't afraid. They're not afraid to approach him, even though God's glory is shining off of him. Now, 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 this is important because there's something about, listen, answered prayer that isn't just encouraging, but it's transformative. It does something to us. It, it changes us. That God uses our praying and then those answers to change something about us spiritually, internally. That God does something to change you when God answers my prayers. God says to change me when God answers your prayers. As we see his glory in that, we are transformed by that. L- listen to this. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 13, talking about the glory of the gospel in Jesus and alluding to this picture of Moses in the Old Testament. He says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, are being transformed, notice, into the same image from one degree of, degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ as he's called in Romans chapter 8? What is he doing? He's changing us from one image of glory to another. We are, as human beings, Image bearers of God. There's a certain glory and value to us, whether we know Jesus or not, whether we believe it or not. This is why we believe every person, no matter race, creed, color, ability, has value because they're image bearers of God. But when we come to know Christ, we go from just being an image bearer to being restored by the image bearer, the, 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 the best one, Jesus. See, we're, we're going to be made not just to be broken people that have value but have rebelled against God. We have to face those consequences of rebelling against God. But we're going to become, listen, we're being changed into the very image of Christ. We're being made like Christ. Why? So that we can enjoy God forever. God the Son's always enjoyed the love of God the Father. God the Son has always loved God the Father. We are going to be made like that. And part of the thing, one of the things that God uses is as we share answered prayer. It seems almost too simple, doesn't it? But the thing is, if we want to see God's goodness and we can see God's goodness in others, that is what God's using to change us, to transform us. And with the same idea of celebrating others' Uh, experience of God's goodness. David says this in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. What David's doing here is he's kind of applying the history of God's people. When, when we see the angel of the, uh, of the Lord mentioned in Scripture, it, it could be uh, what they call a, 
a theophany or a Christophany, a, a pre-incarnate image of, of Jesus in the Old Testament, if you want to get really technical about it. But really, it, what it means is, it's, it's the idea of God's down-to-earth presence, that, that God is, is there. He's practically working there. And so when, when he says this word, the angel of, uh, of the Lord encamps, he's reminding the readers, the singers of these verses, that this has been the story of God's people. God has been with his people from day one. He's been protecting his people. He's been providing for his people. He's been uh, seeking to transform his people. He encamps all around there. He's their protection. He's their provider. He's their father. And when we read the scriptures and we see how faithful God has been to his people, guess what we can expect? The same faithfulness, the same goodness. If we're going to experience God's goodness, we need to learn to celebrate God's goodness and and, and how other people are experiencing it. Now, there's a, a little caveat here. The temptation is to see how another person's experiencing God's Goodness and saying, God, I want that exact same experience. Now keep that in mind as we get to this next bit. Verse nine. Not only do we need to celebrate others' experience of God's goodness, we need to learn to connect the fear of God with God's goodness. What's the fear of God? Look at verse nine. Oh, fear the Lord, all you saints, for those who fear have no lack. now, Now, when he's talking about the fear of the Lord here, the fear of the Lord, and probably the simplest way to define the fear of the Lord, I mean, it, the word fear does mean terror or, or, or like you're kind of, uh, uh, like you just can't move because you're kind of paralyzed with fear. It can mean that. But when it uses the phrase fear of the Lord, it's, it's probably closer to like what we see in the book of Proverbs, the fear of man. When we talk about the fear of man or us falling into the fear of man, which the Bible says is a trap, by the way, When we fear man, what that means is not that we're like, oh no, I'm paralyzed with fear, they're going to hurt me. No, the fear of man is I'm so concerned about what that person thinks of me, it changes my actions. That's the fear of man. So what's the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is to say, I'm more concerned with God's opinion than anybody else's, including my own. That's the fear of the Lord. And so when when David encourages his people, oh, fear the Lord, all you saints, He's saying, be more concerned with what God says than anyone else. Be more concerned about God's opinion than anybody else's. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, the young lions suffer want and they hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Do you see how he connects the seeking of the Lord with the fear of the Lord? Well, this is important. It's important because when we talk about fearing the Lord, to fear the Lord, to be concerned about his opinion above anybody else's, is to seek him as the giver, not just the gift. Now, does every good gift come from God? Absolutely. James is really clear that. Every good thing in your life, again, whether you believe in Jesus today or not, every good thing in your life comes from God. You don't have to, you might not believe that, but that's what the Bible teaches, Okay. Here's the problem. When we as believers especially think, ooh, I want more good gifts, so I'll butter up God. I'll I'll be nice to him. I'll I'll pray the right prayers. I'll make sure I make church more of a priority. I'll do all the right things so I get more good gifts from God. That's actually not fearing the Lord. It's trying to manipulate the Lord, which doesn't work. No, no, when we fear the Lord, we say, God, I, I, I don't want just the good things that you have to, to, to give to me, I want you. I want you who are good. You are good. It's you that I need. The giver, not just the gift. Notice also what he says in verse 11. David's, David prays, this will be part of the psalm they'd sing, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. In other words, the fear of the Lord is something we have to grow in. Now, you, know, you guys might have heard the, the proverb, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Probably many of you guys have heard that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What happens is we can think, oh, it's the beginning, so like I only need it at the start. No, we need to grow in the fear of the Lord. We need to grow in in this place where you think, God, I really want your opinion of my actions, your opinion of my appetites, your opinion of my relationships, your opinion of 
everything to matter more than mine or anybody else's. I want your opinion to matter. Now, this is especially important because in this context, of course, David is talking about how those who seek the Lord or fear the Lord, they lack no good thing. Every good thing, everything that God says is good for us, we get. Now, this is about, listen, it's about answering the question that we have to answer for ourselves. Is God's provision best? Do we believe what God has for us is the best thing for us? Do we actually believe that? A few years ago, uh, our little Zephira was beginning to suffer under the weight of this big trailer we pulled every Sunday. And Sarah's childminding business was growing, and so when she had her helper with her and all the kids, she was struggling to get everyone crammed in this little Zephira, take them on trips and stuff. So we thought, you know what? The Martins have an I-800. The Maggios have an I-800. We're going to get an I-800. Hey, guys, are those good cars? Yeah, they're great cars. And they are. So we got one, went to the dealer, said, I-800, at least two years of, 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 of uh, what do you call it? Warranty. warranty, thank you. There's two years of warranty left on it, please, and we only want to pay X amount of, of pounds. The guy says, let me look into it. Calls us back to the dealer, got the car for you. Got the car, great. Warranty, two years, actually two and a half years. The low mileage, good price, great. This is the car for us. Loved it. Come to find out, they actually missold us the car because the first owner put petrol in a diesel, violated the warranty. So when it started having problems, we took it in. They said, yes, we can fix it for 6,000 pounds, and the warranty doesn't cover it. So we went through all the, the things you have to go through, writing letters and getting involved with the ombudsman, and still no joy. Then it finally broke down when Kevin and I were in a really good conversation. It ruined our conversation, didn't it, Kevin? It really broke down. And... I take it to the shop, and the, and the manager says, I have bad news. More damage has been done now. It's 10,000 pounds. So that car sits in my driveway, and we still owe thousands of pounds on it, and we can't drive it, and we're waiting. Is that God's good provision for me? Serious. Because we would be tempted to say, no, that's just the, that's just the devil. <laughs> now, the thing is, is the enemy involved in these things? Absolutely. It's not, maybe not breaking down my car, but does the enemy encourage people to lie about the cars they sell? Sure he does. Does the enemy want me to, to lose it over this thing? Yes. But, but here's the reality. The reality is, God had provided enough money in the bank to buy this, this little beater that I drive, this Honda with 117,000 miles that, that we have christened the Golden Nugget because it's this really nasty, ugly gold color. <laughs> and it, it, it runs fine. And, and the truth is, yes, we still have to make payments on this car that we can't drive, but we have a car that we can drive. So in one sense, we're not really that much out than we were before. And it's not over yet. We don't know what, what's going to happen if the ombudsman actually does what he's supposed to do and, and fights for us. I mean, if this happens, we could get that money back. We don't know what's going to happen yet. But here's what we have to be content with. God, you said, if I fear you, I'll lack no good thing. Which means whatever I have right now is the good that you want me to have. Because this is the good you're going to use to make me good, to make me like Jesus. Listen to this, when Jesus is talking to his disciples about trusting God for material possessions, material provision, he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, material things, will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. See, fearing God means saying, God, your provision is best and if I have what I need today, I have your best. I don't have to worry about tomorrow. This is hard to do. But if we really want to see God's goodness and not just get good things from God, this is what he's calling us to. We celebrate others' experience of God's goodness. We connect the fear of God to God's goodness. And speaking of the fear of God, it's not just asking the question, is God's provision best? It's also asking, is God's standard best? Look at verse 12. 
He says, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Do you see he asks a question and he answers it? Who wants to see good? Oh, I do. Then do good. This is not about you earning goodness, okay? In fact, what's interesting is, What's really telling about these verses, really from verse 12 down to verse 16, is how Peter, the Apostle Peter, uses these in the New Testament. I'm going to put them on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 3, listen to this. Look at the the context for these first parts of these verses. Peter writes this way. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now listen, Peter's saying life's hard. As a Jesus follower, you're going to suffer in a bunch of ways, and you're going to be tempted to get bitter because you're suffering. But I'm telling you, don't get bitter. Bless the people that are cursing you. Learn to love your enemies. And if those enemies are brothers and sisters of Christ, double down. Love them even more. Be even more committed. And then what does he do? He quotes these verses. Listen to this. And whoever desires to love life and see good days, this is from Psalm 34, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. In other words, who wants the good life? Here's the good life by God's standard. Listen, the good life is seeking to do good for others. You want to see God's goodness? You want to experience God's goodness? Seek to do good for others. Now, please don't see this as so simple that I'm done good now. Okay, here comes the good back to me. It's more complex than that. It's more of when I say, God, I don't want just good things, but I want you who's the giver of good gifts, and I don't want to just uh, want good for me. I want to see good for others, and then I seek to do good for others. You know what ends up happening? I say, God, you're good. Because I don't always really want, I really would rather put my desires and my needs before other people's. But when I finally submit to you and I put your, put your will for my life, which is to seek the good of others, if I put that first, you know what I see? God, you are so good. You know, the more I seek to live this kind of good life that God says is good, the more I recognize I am not good and I'm so thankful for the good news that God is so gracious to me. So part of fearing God and part of us connecting the fear of God with the goodness of God is being able to say, yes, God's provision is best and yes, God's standard is best. Interesting, it doesn't even stop there. Peter continues to quote the Psalm 34. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, he says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous And his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Interesting. In Psalm 34, we have all that. But Peter leaves out this last bit of verse 16. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. It's as if Peter's saying, listen, I'm not trying to hold salvation over your head. I'm trying to tell you, since your name hasn't been cut off, you need to live like a believer, not like an unbeliever. I'm trying to say to you, listen, that that what you think is prosperity, all my problems going away, is not what God says is prosperity. What God says prosperity is, listen, prosperity is having God's righteousness. Knowing that God declares you righteous. Going back to the fear of the Lord, God's opinion is more important than anybody else's opinion. My opinion of me is I'm sinful and failing and weak and unbelieving. I'm not good enough to be declared as God's child. God says, I didn't ask you what you thought. I'm telling you what you are through Christ. Listen, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, that in Christ we might become the righteousness of See, until we connect the goodness of God with the fear of God, you know what's going to happen? We're always going to just look for the gifts and not the giver. 
Until we're concerned about what God says, we're not going to experience God's goodness. You know why? Because we're going to have the wrong idea of what that goodness is. We're going to think God's goodness is happy, healthy family, debts paid off, cars working, dessert seven nights a week. This is what we're going to see. But when we see, God, it's what you say is good that matters. I, I, I care about your opinion. What do you say is good? And we pursue that, then guess what we see? We see God's goodness. And when you see God's goodness, the more you see God's goodness, the less you want your substitutes, your counterfeits. This brings us to the last point that I think that David is, is wanting us to sing about. David's wanting us to celebrate about tasting and seeing that God is good, about experiencing his goodness. That is that we need to submit our suffering to God's goodness. What does he say in verse 17? He says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. I want you to recognize what he's saying there, okay? I want you to recognize the righteous have a lot of troubles. The righteous, those that God says, I accept you in, in Jesus. The one that God says, I render you forgiven and right with me. They have a lot of troubles. And their experience is often feeling, listen, brokenhearted, crushed in spirit. Why? Well, we're going to talk more about this, or I won't, but the brother who's going to teach this, when we get to Psalm 51 in a few weeks' time, we're going to see more about what that crushing of spirit comes from, where that brokenness comes from. But here's what you need to recognize, the promise that's there in verse 18. God is near to those who are broken through their suffering. He's near. Uh, listen to this. I love what Isaiah says. In Isaiah chapter 57, listen to this. Isaiah says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Doesn't that just seem like God is just huge and far from us and majestic and untouchable, right? He says, God says this, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. And why does he do that? Why does he, he dwell with us when we're broken over our suffering and our sin? Why does he dwell with us? Listen, to revive the spirit lowly and to revive the heart to the contract. Some of you guys are praying for revival. If you don't know what we mean by that, talk to us afterwards. We'll give you a bigger explanation. But we're praying for revival. God, revive your people. Maybe what we need to pray for is brokenness and contriteness before the Lord. Revival is when God comes near his people and brings them back to himself. When they are surrendered to him. And the result of revival is radical transformation of his people. And the result of that transformation is many people gathered in to God's people. New people added we tend to think of just that last bit. Yeah, revival, lots of people coming. That's not revival. Revival is not about how many people coming. Revival is about God changing his people, reviving, putting life in their people again. And, and then from that, as he changes them, he uses that to draw many people to himself. Where does it begin? It begins with a brokenness. This is what's interesting. Because when we recognize that God's near to those who are broken through suffering. Isn't that completely counterintuitive? Because don't we often feel like, where are you, God, when things are going bad? Isn't that what we normally do? God, where are you? I thought you were good. This is what I was doing on my couch, weeping before my wife. Where's God? Does he not care? Am I, what am I supposed to expect from his goodness? Where is he in this? God, I, I need you. I, I need you now. 
a lot because I'm struggling, Lord. I'm praying to him. But what does the scripture say? What does the psalmist promise? He's right there with me. He's near. Especially as I recognize my selfishness and my short-sightedness and my inability to do anything other than just say, God, I'm yours. But suffering, listen, is also our opportunity to see God's hand. Now remember the preface that I said to you is this, this introduction. It's part of the original text. It says, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went out. You guys have other versions, right, that are a bit more to the point. They say something along the lines of, this, is, this was uh, of David when he acted like he was insane before Abimelech. And you can look up the story in 1 Samuel 21, I think it is. And it's an amazing story because what you have happening is David is fleeing from King Saul. Because King Saul knows that David is actually the king that God wants. Saul don't want to give up the throne. So he's running from King Saul, who should have been like a mentor and friend. He's running from him. And where is he running? He's running to King Abimelech, who's the king of, of the people of Gath, who really were the enemies of God's people. So he's running from someone who should have been a friend to someone who's an enemy. And when the enemy says, oh, yeah, you can come in, but then his... his his advisors say, you can't, this is David. Haven't you heard of David? David like kills people all the time. David's a, a mighty warrior of God. You can't trust this guy. So David knows, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I'm going to die. So he starts like scratching out the walls and salivating down his beard, like acting like he's just a, off his rocker. And you read this and you think, well, that's a weird thing. That's not the verses that you put on someone's, you know, birthday card. And David salivated and scratched at the wall. Have a happy birthday. But, but it's, it's interesting, is in that context, when he's in this place of, the issue is not that he salivated. The issue is not that he acted like he was crazy. That, that's not something we're supposed to repeat necessarily. The issue is he was desperate. He had no idea what to do. I'm running from someone who should be my friend, and I'm stuck in front of someone who's my enemy. God, what do I do? And he cries out to God, and God delivers him. He delivers him. Listen, God delivers him. In such a way that he knows that had to be the Lord. That had to be God who delivered me. My friend Rob Dingman, some of you guys have heard him preach here before. Rob Dingman says, if it's not a real crisis, it's not a real save. I love that. The, the thing is, sometimes we're saying, God, save me from this extra bill I have. And we should pray for those kinds of things. But really, it's like God's saying, I'll save you if you stop spending so much money shopping online. Sometimes it, we really don't have a crisis other than maybe a crisis of character. And so when we have a real crisis, in fact, this is one of the things that Sarah and I talked about that day when we prayed together. This is so beyond us now. We can't fix this. And so, Lord, only you can bring justice. And we, we asked that it would come this side of heaven so we get this car thing sorted out. But if not, we know you, you will bring justice. Because, God, there's nothing else we can do. And we were reminded, man, this is a real crisis. But guess what that means? There can be a real save. God can do something where we're like, oh, the Lord really worked that out. You see, see, David is writing this because he recognizes, man, I was in a place where I should have died. And God actually delivered me. God came through. He heard my prayers. His suffering, having to run from Saul. His suffering, thinking he's about to be killed before Abimelech. That suffering was an opportunity to see God's hand. Do you want to see the good hand of God in your life? The next time you're in that situation, say, all right, God, what do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do? Uh, this is interesting, too, because look at verse 20 again. In verse 20, or verses 19 and 20, actually. Uh, look at verses 19 and 20 again. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers how many? All. all out of them all. Then he, he says this, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Doesn't that seem odd in the context? What an odd thing to say. Now, in a sense, what he's saying is, hey, I, I could have been beat up and left for dead, but I didn't have a single bone broken. But there's something else about this. Listen. This is prophetic because this is how John the Apostle, 
applies it to Jesus in John chapter 19. Listen. But when the, this is Jesus is on the cross, right? And when the soldiers came to Jesus, he's on the cross, and saw that he, had all, he was already dead, they did not break his legs, which is what they would have done. They would have broken his legs so he would have died quicker. That's what they did with crucifixion victims. They would, if they were taking a long time, they would break their legs so they'd die quicker so they wouldn't have to have the mess. But he wouldn't do it. Why? This John tells us why. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, and he quotes Psalm 34, not one of his bones will be broken. Now, this is important because, remember, even though we look back to when David wrote this psalm and we say, yes, Lord, we want to celebrate you, the God and Father of, of the one who called David to be king of Israel. We want to celebrate you. You're his God, but you're also the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's, your, that's the main way we know you. And so seeing that, Lord, we want to see this. We want to recognize that this points forward to Jesus. It points forward to Jesus, and it reminds us, listen, that Jesus, listen, he understands, he identifies with our suffering. And he suffers to save us from its ultimate power over us. Another psalm, Psalm 119, largest psalm in the scriptures, all about the psalmist's love for God as he experiences God through God's word. Here's what David writes in Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, he says, oh wait, yes, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolence smear me with lies, but my whole heart, with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me. Notice that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Do you see this? Do you see how the psalmist, how David is submitting his sufferings to God's goodness and even seeing God's goodness in the suffering itself? He's experiencing, God, you're so good. You're so good to let me be afflicted this way so I would learn just to trust in your word. God, you're so good that you would allow me to suffer so that you could cut out of my heart these false gods that I want to worship. God, you're so good that you would allow me to go through this difficulty so that I could see your good hand at work. God, you're so good. That's what the psalmist is praying. Do you want to experience the goodness of God? Look at verse 21. We're almost done. He says, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Do you remember what we just read there in Psalm 119, how, how David is contrasting his attitude towards suffering with maybe an unbeliever's attitude towards suffering? He's kind of saying, look, I've kept your word. I'm taking you at your word, but they are smearing, with, smearing me with lies. And I'm trying to keep your precepts, but these guys have no feeling towards you. They're like numb. In other words, listen, we're talking about here suffering, submitting our suffering to God's goodness, and suffering is a reminder that God will have ultimate justice. I, I'm not saying that everything you suffer, you'll be able to, to, to connect the dots to go, oh, I see why I'm suffering this. I know exactly what God's doing. Sometimes you do, but it's not until years later. Sometimes you just don't. We won't know until we see God face to face. But we can take God at his word that we will see the reason for everyone and every bit of our suffering, because God is good, and he never wastes our pain. See, what happens is, when we talk about suffering as a reminder of God's justice, it's a justice that we, as believers, grow in. We, we, we see, yes, God, I, I don't understand why bad things happen. I don't, don't want to try to give a trite answer to my friends that say, why does God allow so much suffering? Or why did God allow my grandma to die? Or why did God allow you know, uh, this person to, to leave me at the altar? Or whatever the painful thing you went through. Or why did God allow this to me to mis be missold a car? I don't have an answer for those things. And we shouldn't act like we have an answer to those things. But I do know that the God who allowed it is good. And he's going to show me his goodness through that suffering. I know that. 
But it's that kind of justice that unbelievers reject. There's so much, uh, there's so much calling right now for justice. Because the world is beginning to recognize how much injustice there is. And this call for justice is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But here's the problem. The problem is there's no real hope for justice unless there's a God who can bring ultimate justice. Because every injustice that we see and experience, we've already experienced. And every injustice that continues to happen as that counter goes on for another injustice and another one and another one and another one and another one. And those wheels start spinning of all the injustices that are building up over and over again. All we can do is go, what? All we can do is get angry at that injustice. And in some ways we should. But there's no hope unless there's a God who brings ultimate justice. And the only way we have a hope and ultimate justice is when injustice is done to us as God's people, we still say, God, I know, even in this, I can experience your goodness. You guys following me? Because it's a justice, listen, that ultimately redeems sinners. People who have done injustices and had injustices done to them, they're both sinners, they're both propagators of sins, uh, sin and also victims of sin. And Jesus redeems sinners. Look at verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None who take refuge in him will be condemned. Refuge is not a storm being over. It's shelter in the storm. And God says, you can take refuge in him. When I was about 14, my dad and I were homeless. My older brothers had moved out of the house, uh, some out of necessity, because we were going to become homeless. My dad and I would sneak into the place of business where he worked and would sleep on the floor. And this odd thing happened. You know, there's, there's a lot of bad that happened with this homelessness. Let me just say, it was only a few weeks, by the grace of God, it was only a few weeks, but a lot of bad things happened with that. But one of the things that was interesting is I found myself appreciating things like uh, just a warm bed. Because we were sort of like laying down sleeping bags and then sleeping on a cement floor and then had one of these little kind of space heaters. And at first it was fine, but I don't know if you know this, but if you sleep on cement, the, the cement sucks the heat out of your body. So eventually you wake up cold. And I, I'll tell you, I, I maybe really appreciate, I may take like two showers a day, my wife will tell you. And part of that is because I appreciate showers, man. Because there was no shower there, so I had to kind of go my friend's house and say, hey, is it cool if I take a shower at your house? Which is really awkward for a 14-year-old boy to do. So, so even though that was a horrible thing, and I'm so thankful that's never been repeated with my kids, it, God taught me some good stuff, even from that. And here's the good thing. The good thing is, I realize, I, what I learned about a refuge is, a refuge is not, it doesn't have anything to do with how nice the place is where you dwell. It has to be how sufficient it is to get you out of the storm. Because sleeping on that cold cement floor was way better than sleeping outside. Because sleeping outside meant exposure to the elements. It meant exposure to really bad people. And that would have been much worse for a 14-year-old boy. See, the point is this, guys. We experience God's Suffering, or I'm sorry, we experience God's goodness as we submit our suffering to him. Lord, here it is. What, what are you doing with this? And let me ask you a real pointed question. Do you know any other worldview or philosophy that has a better answer to your suffering than this? Where else are you gonna go? Where else are you gonna look in the midst of your suffering? Because as, as, as generally helpful as, as psychiatric researchers and psychologists want to be, they want to help. They really do. They see the brokenness of man and they want to help. And I praise God for their research. But as much as they want to help, they can only go so far. And the only way we can ever have hope is to know, is to believe that we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. We will taste and see that the Lord is good. I'll close with this verse. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, 
but he died for sinners. To bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but was raised to life in the spirit. I want you guys to consider three things before we close in prayer. I want you to consider thanking God right now for the good that you see him doing in someone else's life. Think about another believer that maybe you're tempted to to be jealous of and give thanks for the good that's in their life. I want you to ask God right now to show you what do you fear more than his good opinion? Is it the opinion of friends, parents, co-workers, neighbors, lecturers, the general public? And I want you to consider seeing your sin and the sin done to you as already nailed to the cross. People say, why does a good God allow so much suffering? Why doesn't he do something about it? He has. He entered into our suffering and paid to remove it. He's gonna come back. And when he comes back, all Suffering, unrighteousness, he takes away. Until then, we pray. God, help us experience your goodness. Lord, we just leave with you our trials, our failures, our sufferings. We say, God, forgive us, heal us, provide for us. God, we we fear you. We're, We're more concerned about what you think about us than anything else. And so Lord, we pray you meet our needs as you see fit, as what's best for your plan, not just for us as an individual, but Lord, for us as your people. What's the best way that you're gonna provide? And Lord, we we trust your standard, Lord. We, We don't wanna say, God, be good to me, but we never want to be good. Make us good, Lord. Teach us how to do the good works that you've set before us to do. Yeah, Lord, meet us, we pray. We submit our lives to you afresh. And we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen, amen.